ND Nation. Irish Talk is undefeated at 2-0 in our podcast era. Five episodes in, but the trajectory of the podcast sure seems to be on thin ice. Notre Dame escapes for the second week in a row, but hey, win your clunkers. I'm your co-host, Brett, and as always, I'm joined by my dear friend and Notre Dame vagabond, Mike. Mike, where are you recording from this week? Broadcasting from the Great North, a.k.a. the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Unlike last time I was here, which was actually in the dead of winter, which is not the way people usually do it. The weather here is great, and the air is clean, which unfortunately I can't always say for L.A. Unfortunately, I just missed the Minnesota State Fair. For those of you who haven't been, highly recommend it. You got butter sculptures, lumberjack game competitions, fried Twinkies. I mean, really anything you want fried up, they can do it. So a lot of fun, really a nightmare for cardiac health, but totally worth it. I'm up here staying with my fiance's family to look at wedding venues, actually. Uh, so that aside is a reminder for me to introduce Kristen officially as the official fiance of our podcast. She went to ND, but not the biggest football fan. Regardless, I can usually guilt her into watching the games. Hey, that's awesome, man. You're in my homeland. I also hail from the land of 10,000 lakes, the home of Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox, the North Star State. And I can also confirm the Minnesota get together, uh, AKA the state fair. Great event. Definitely. And some of the nicest, most polite people you'll find anywhere in the country. Um, but moving on, we got a great show in store for you. We'll recap the very shaky Toledo game and look ahead to Purdue. And then Brett's going to go, he's going to go solo on a segment covering the offensive line blocking schemes. That's right. We've talked a lot about how the offensive line might make or break this season, something we predicted coming into the year and certainly has been a red flag here in these first two games against Toledo and Florida State. So I've spent the entire offseason doing deep dive sessions in the film room, picture John Gruden, Spider 2, Y Banana, but instead with big 300-pound dudes moving the line of scrimmage, analyzing Jeff Quinn schemes, Harry Heastan schemes, we're going to get into the X's and O's, so apologies in advance, really gritty, granular segment, but we know a lot of our listeners, you want to be here for this show to get more knowledgeable about football, more knowledgeable about the analytics, you can maybe talk to your coworkers or your significant others and really know what's going on inside the game. So this segment is for you. And by the end, I hope you'll be ready to dissect every Notre Dame run, where it went right, where it went wrong, and and really be able to talk up your knowledge of Notre Dame football. All right, all right, Brett, I I can tell you're excited, maybe a little too excited. So we're going to get there. But I I can tell just from your tongue you're ready to go full Quentin Nelson and just truck someone here. I don't know if it's going to be I'm ready, Coach. Let me at him. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, before we dive into Toledo and the rest of our show, we're going to skip listener questions this week and instead start with an inspirational yet heartbreaking story on one of Notre Dame's captains. And our last captain, Myra. We wanted to start this week's episode talking about Myron Tungavailoa Mosa, Notre Dame's defensive end and captain. No, we're not going to spend time talking about his two sacks and the forced fumble that really sealed the game against Toledo. Uh, We're instead going to talk about something going on in Myron's personal life. His father passed away unexpectedly in August, a deeply spiritual family from Hawaii. Myron's father was a pastor for a local church, and it's clear to anyone that has followed this program that that has left a huge impact on his son and the rest of their family. After his father passed away, Myron flew back to Hawaii to be with his family in August. And over the Zoom next day, he actually found out he was a captain for Notre Dame's 133rd football team coming into the 2021 season. Myron came back to campus a few days later, took a red-eye flight, was right back on the field with his teammates, leader of the defensive line in practice. And fast forward a few weeks, Myron has the game-saving fumble against Toledo. And after the game on Saturday, he had to skip interviews with the media because he needed to get back on Zoom to attend his father's funeral virtually. There's a lot of headlines about this Notre Dame team, their performance against Toledo, where the season goes from here, Brian Kelly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we also realize this podcast is, is, is mainly going to be about analytics. But in our very first episode, we also said this podcast was first and foremost going to be celebrating kids that bring us together as part of the Notre Dame family. So Myron, we're praying for you. We're praying for your family. And I'll close this segment up by quoting Coach Marcus Freeman who was asked in August, how do you respond to a player in Myron's situation? And I quote, I love you. That's it. I didn't know his father, but when some you care about is hurting a lot, there's not many words you can say except for, I love you and I'm here for you. That's all I did. Before he left, 
I told him I love him and anything you need, we're here for you. When he got back, I gave him a hug, told him I love him, and said, welcome back, Captain. It's good to have him back. Some things are bigger than sports, and, and sometimes sports bring us closer together. Hopefully, this leaves us all with some perspective. That transition, of course, is the team prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer said by the Notre Dame football team before each game, and we thought it was fitting to to follow up the section on Myron with, with a prayer for his family. Let's move on and talk Toledo. Mike, you want to kick us off? Holy Toledo, we stuck. Sorry, you know I had to, I had to fit that one in. <laughs> uh, Irish needed a comeback from behind uh, victory to beat Toledo. Obvious stats, three turnovers, including a back-breaking fumble by Kyron as the Irish try to close it out in the fourth quarter. Toledo then comes back and scores to take a late lead. Um, but before, shortly after, Jack Cohn and, and Mike Mayer's heroics bring the Irish back from the dead and one of the most uh, exciting, stressful, frustrating games that I've seen in a long time. Well, I guess really since the Florida State game. But uh, it seems like it's been a lifetime. <laughs> since, since seven then. days ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyways, uh, Brett, you want to walk us through the advanced box score? Yeah, Notre Dame's post-game win expectancy was 98%. 98%. Not not what my eyes saw, but really um, hard to have a 98% win expectancy and it require theatrics to, to squeak out a fourth quarter win. But alas, here we are. Forget what your eyes showed you. Notre Dame dominated this football game. Notre Dame fans might not want to admit that. They maybe didn't see that, but they did dominate this game. Notre Dame's success rate on the offensive side of the ball was 46%. Again, we've mentioned this stat a lot. If, if you held up 46% success rate for an entire season, that would put you top 25 in the country. Really, anything above 40% is considered solid. On the other side of the ball, Toledo's offensive success rate was 31%. For context, if our defense replicated that success rate for an entire season, that would have been the best in college football in 2020. So just for starters on some of the most critical stats, post-game win expectancy, success rates, Notre Dame was the better team in this game and by a very wide margin. Okay, so the advanced box score says Gyrish by a mile, but why was it so close? <laughs> Havoc and explosiveness both went against the Irish in a big way. Toledo had an explosiveness score of 1.57. For context, 1.2 is average. 1.6 would have been number two in the country last year. So what a wild combination of stats. Success rate, Toledo's success rate was abysmal, way below average and very unsustainable, but the explosiveness was out of this world. Five plays of 15-plus yards, and after that, ND's defense didn't, didn't allow an inch. But those five plays generated just enough for Toledo. Yeah, and on the other side of the ball, Notre Dame had an incredible success rate. I already mentioned that at 46%, but Toledo's defense mitigated all of that with havoc. Sack after sacks. There were six sacks in this game. They generated three turnovers, the crucial pick six at the end of the first half to give Toledo the lead going into the break. Mike, you mentioned Kyron Williams' fumble late in the fourth quarter. So all that havoc, those turnovers, it really wiped out all of the production that Notre Dame was generating play in and play out, just kind of came to a halt on those uh, big momentum-changing plays. The result, a really close game, way closer than the stats indicated. Just looking at the basic box score, Indy had 416 yards after penalties. Compare that to just 248 for Toledo, outgaining them by almost a 1.7 ratio. Yet, here we are, a very weird game. Irish squeeze out only a three-point win. So first takeaway from this game, I think Notre Dame was the dominant team. Um, maybe not what we saw with our eyes, but that's what the stats are telling us. The other big headline to get into is South Bend might have a quarterback controversy. Uh, Buckner, the true freshman, comes in, replaces Jack Cohn, marches down the field 96 yards for a touchdown, made it look easy. Rest of the way, we saw the quarterbacks coming in and out of the game. Following the game, Brian Kelly in the post-game press conference, he confirmed Buckner came in all about packages. They needed to mix things up to get the running game going. They thought Buckner could run that package really well and get that run game going. Uh, but even on Jack Cohn, he was very, very positive. He thought a lot of the sacks weren't actually on the offensive line or the quarterback. He thought there were coverage sacks where guys weren't getting open or running backs and, and tight ends were missing their blocking assignments. So he was very complimentary to both quarterbacks. He emphasized uh, Cohn was, quote-unquote, outstanding, had a bunch of other superlatives for Cohn. 
He didn't outright say Jack Cohen's the starter going into next week, but certainly by Brian Kelly press conference standards, he was about as committed as he could have been to Jack Cohen. And, and I think at least for right now, Jack Cohen's still the guy. Let's take a look at the stats here. Jack Cohn's predicted points added in this game was 15.2, compared to 18 against Florida State. So the stats say he was just about as productive as he was in the opener when he was receiving a lot of praise. Two touchdowns to the mayor, including the game winner, and his predicted points added per play was 0.4, right in line with what he did in the first game, right in line with Book's production from last year, actually. But Bookner, wow, Bookner. On, on, a, on a fewer subset of plays, he was dynamic with his arms and legs. And his predicted points added per play was a wild 2.4. Again, small sample size, but he added 1.1 points per play. Every six plays on offense, his performance added over a touchdown to the game. I mean, wow, that, that's, that's, that's a pretty, like ridiculous stat that just immediately grabs your attention stand aside joe burrow that's just wild wild stats uh guyish talk podcast we are huge jack cone fans but wow tyler buckner has forced himself onto the field and really given the coaching staff a lot to think about what i'd highlight from that stats you just went over cone and buckner both played really really well at quarterback cone was great buckner was great but I actually think this is more about the offensive line. We, we talked about pro football grades last week where our offensive line was grading out at 54 in run protection, really abysmal grading. Uh, they were 70 in pass protection. Now this week, we actually saw surprisingly better grades from pro football focus. Our offensive line graded out at 83 in pass blocking despite allowing six sacks. Really nice bounce back game from Kane Madden. And then the offensive line got a 65 grade in the run game. So still not really there in the run game. And so I think what you really saw here in these first two weeks is the offensive line struggled to get momentum going in the running game. And Jack Cohn didn't provide that second dimension of the run game. Uh, Buckner does. Buckner comes in as a mobile quarterback, diversifies the playbook, gets the defense on the heels. And so I think the offensive line actually drove the quarterback decision here. The offensive line couldn't get things moving with the football, needed to bring in the quarterback, and that led to getting Buckner on the field, and he did really well and took advantage of his opportunity. Yep. Cone just doesn't have the mobility that Buckner does, or frankly, Kaiser or Wimbush or Zare. And without that threat of the QB run, defenses can get very aggressive, which is what they've been doing to us so far. They take away the run game. We become one-dimensional in a hurry. When Buckner came into the game, we ran the RPO twice. Then the defenses got on their heels, froze at the line of scrimmage, and the entire offense has opened up. Running lanes for Buckner, running lanes for Tyree and Kyron, passing lanes across the field. I think it's clear Cone is the better passer, which really might just be experience here. Um, Buckner will get there, I think, but right now Cone is 100% the better passer. However, all of that is overshadowed by the offensive line play. And given the limitations up front, Buckner's the guy, plain and simple. No fault to Cone. But this offense is more multidimensional and more efficient with a mobile QB on the field. And Buckner looks really, really good as a true dual threat. I thought as soon as Buckner came in, uh, we've really focused on the advanced stats, but the eye test was pretty telling, I think, on offense. As you could just tell how much more easily the offense was coming. Um, so I guess we'll see what, what Kelly decides going forward. But um, I think with Buckner at the helm, it does give our offense uh, much many more possibilities. Yeah, despite what Brian Kelly is saying about Cone, you know, may or may not being the guy and, and really standing behind him and referring to Buckner more as a shot-in-the-arm quarterback, I think Tyler Buckner is going to play his way onto the field this season. Looked really good in his first action. Some yep. other individual performances to call out, specifically on the defensive line. Top to bottom graded out very well on pro football focus. If you remove the turnovers and the short fields that, that the offense sort of put the defense behind the chains, they did really well. Kurt Heinisch graded out at a 78, Jason Adamalola at a 76, Myron Tungavailoa Mosa at a 75. So uh, three defensive players in our top five grades um, coming from the defensive line. And then the corners actually played great despite giving up some big plays early. Uh, Tariq Bracey and Clarence Lewis both graded out at 75. So no surprise their defensive line created a lot of havoc and pressure in this game. You saw that in the pro football focus grades. I think one of the bigger surprises came at cornerback where we saw both Bracey and Lewis grade out well. Maybe a good sign of things to come that these big plays are maybe a bit more random sample size and will regress to the mean soon. A couple other notes on offense. For the skills positions, Tyree's predicted points added was number one on the team at 2.5, driven by that long TD run, uh, followed by Kyron at 1.1, 1. 1, 
Avery Davis at 0.9 and Michael Mayer at 0.8. So Meyer has the heroics, another two-touchdown performance, and clearly looking like an All-American. Kyron, over 100 all-purpose yards for the second straight night. Week also looking like an All-American. But let's give a big shout-out here for Captain Avery Davis. Completes the two-point conversion as it could be. Uh, as a reminder for, for our listeners, Avery Davis actually uh, originally came to the program as a QB, so he got, got to show off that, that arm a little bit here. Uh, but he also he made some big, some big third-down catches as, as a safety blanket for Cone. Only three catches for 29 yards, but as we said, really big moments, efficient plays. And you see that in the advanced box score. Quick reminder on predicted points added per play. Ian Book was 0.4 last year. Mike Mayer and Javon McKinley were 0.8. So 0.4 for QB, above average. 0.8 over the course of a season, above average. So if you're putting up games above 0.8 at the skills positions, you're having yourself quite a day. We had four skills position players above that level. Uh, and number four on that list was a guy posting two TDs in an All-American campaign. Just great to see that that balance from the skills positions. Let's pivot to what this means in the big picture. Where does this season go from here? And look, a lot of Notre Dame fans, they're very quick to write this team off. A lot of negative publicity in social media and the broader media at large. We just talked through a lot of advanced stats that tend to indicate Notre Dame's on the verge of maybe figuring things out and being a good team this year and, and really just seeing some random sample size of turnovers and chunk plays but by the opponents. But on the eye test alone, this looks like an eight or nine win team. And another really telling stat is ESPN's win predictor. This largely tracks season long odds in Las Vegas for what they expect Notre Dame's win total to be for the entire season. Coming into the week, that was 9.2. And despite winning this game, that dropped to 8.3, almost a full win lower than last week, despite winning a game. Uh, most importantly, coming into this week, Notre Dame was favored in all 12 of their games this year. ESPN now has us as underdogs against Wisconsin, Virginia Tech, UNC, and Virginia. So the advanced stats in the Toledo game are telling us to stay calm. My eyes are telling me to freak out. And the season-long predictions uh, at ESPN and, and really Las Vegas are telling us this is an eight-win team. And then on the flip side, to make it even more confusing, Bill Connolly's SP Plus actually had Notre Dame improving uh, the ranking versus last week. So we jumped from number 28 to number 23. Um, pretty much, as we discussed, so much of that formula is based on success rate. And Notre Dame had a very high success rate. So that's, that's what was really driving it home here. But, you know, to hammer home, hammer home this point uh, about Endy's outlook for this season, two key issues. Offensive line play is shaky at best, and the defense is giving up way too many plays. Those those issues need to be resolved ASAP, or it might be generous for this team to even get to eight wins. But if those issues get shored up, there's still a lot to be optimistic about with this team. If you're committed, if you communicate, and you're consistent, then you have what it takes to be a great leader. Notre Dame Nation can breathe easily this weekend. A Saturday's game against Purdue is back to old, reliable NBC. The Peacock broadcast was an interesting experiment. Um, we're we're waiting to see if any data is released on its level of success. Uh, I would imagine, from NBC's perspective, it's pretty much the best case scenario. You had a very close emotional game, a QB change, pretty much everything that you would want to really drive subscriptions and engagement. Um, so, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if there are any uh, takeaways from that. Maybe it'll help Notre Dame get a bigger TV deal. Either way, I imagine fans are uh, happy to get back to the old uh, regular routine. And with that return to the regular routine on NBC this week, Notre Dame's also taking on an old in-state rival, Purdue. Purdue and Notre Dame have met 86 times since 1896, with Notre Dame holding the series advantage at 56 wins, 26 losses, and two ties. The last time the two teams met, Notre Dame handed the Boilermakers a 30-14 to loss in Indianapolis in 2014 in the Shamrock Series to maintain possession of the Shillelagh, the rivalry trophy for this game. I'll be honest, looking up this series, I didn't realize how much time has elapsed since the last time we played Purdue in this series. Another unfortunate casualty of conference expansion, Notre Dame's closer ties to the ACC, etc. Agreed. This series, while not always the most thrilling, was a regular staple of NBC's schedule early in our fandom in particular. One storyline that will be mentioned quite a bit on the NBC broadcast this week is uh, that this is future NFL Hall of Famer Drew Brees' broadcast network debut. Last week, he had a debut, but it was on Peacock. And it's happening against his alma mater. 
let's not give him too hard a time, ND fans. He's not Doug Flutie, who I had no problems with, by the way. We are lucky oh, to get Flutie him. was terrible. Get him out of here. <laughs> I, I'm, he, I, so far, I like, I think the early takeaways from Breeze on Peacock, I actually thought he looked very comfortable in the booth. Um, so my immediate impression is he's an upgrade. I didn't hate Flutie, Agreed. though. Clear, clearly, clearly, Brett uh, is not the biggest Flutie fan. But I think a big takeaway here is that we're lucky to get someone of Breeze's stature on our broadcast. And he was, he was nothing but class throughout his story NFL career. Definitely. I'm, I'm personally excited to see Breeze in the booth, you know, moving on. Last year's a challenging one for Purdue's head coach, Jeff Brom. His team went two and four, had a shortened COVID season, only played six games. It's worth noting, however, they were competitive in all their games. None of their losses were blowouts. Uh, ESPN's FPI's latest projections have them improving this year, getting up to about six games. So this team probably goes bowling. Uh, probably not going to be, you know, high-end Big Ten team. But look to see Jeff Brown really continue to improve the trajectory of this program. Even with that projected improvement, ESPN FPI has this game as our fourth easiest remaining game with a win probability of 72%. For reference, our win probability against Toledo was about 89% going into that game. So, I don't know, maybe that might make, I don't know if that makes Notre Dame fans feel better here based on what happened at Toledo. But, a quick glance, Purdue must like their 2-0 start with a 49 to nothing win against UConn this past week and a 30-21 to win over Oregon State in Week 1. That Huskies team, though, is quite inept. Maybe even the butt of college football these days. Oregon State is bad, too. So, I don't think you can put too much stock into those performances. In terms of the advanced metrics, we're just two games in, so it's early, but SP Plus has Purdue ranked as the number 40 team, 42 team overall. That comes with a defensive ranking of number 73 and an offensive ranking of number 22. So overall, Purdue is a mediocre Power 5 team last year, but playing well out of the gate this year, and falls into that category of a one-half team that we discussed in our second episode. Defense looks to be more of the same as it was last year, a below-average Power 5 defense, but really a high-power offense that's capable of scoring a lot of points. Some quick hitters on Purdue's offensive strategy. Brom loves leveraging a barrage of quick passes as a complement to his cut to the customary run game. Last year, more than half of Purdue's 43.5 passes per game uh, were within eight yards of the line of scrimmage. If they can combine that with a solid rush attack, based on week one and what we've seen so far this year, um, it looks like they should. There are many ways that they can pick up five, six yards per play. They've tended to struggle a bit with big plays of 20-plus yards, and they did last year even before Rondell Moore, who's now in the NFL, opted out. In terms of their offensive personnel this season, they're utilizing quarterback Jake Plummer, sorry, Jack Plummer, wideouts David Bell, their top returning wide receiver, and Milton Wright, running backs Xander Horvath and King Doru. Plummer's an accurate quarterback. He's not a burner, true dual-threat quarterback, but he can escape the pocket. His legs can be used as a weapon. Uh, also probably not the biggest arm strength they're going to see on the field, but an accurate, solid uh, Big Ten quarterback. Receivers Bell and Wright, they're really the firepower of this offense. Both were top 300 recruits, so they can really go lay things out on the outside, go make big plays. And then this offensive line should be solid. They bring back three returning starters led by their senior left tackle, Greg Long. As we mentioned previously, Purdue really struggled defensively last year. They ranked 99th in passing success rate allowed and 126th in sack rate. Purdue, interestingly, is currently using three co-defensive coordinators this year, led by a, the former Charlotte head coach. They do return eight starters, so a lot of talent back, led by star defensive end George uh, Karloftis. Uh, Karloftis last year was uh, lost injury in COVID, uh, but he's back this year, and he looks to be all Big Ten material. Uh, and this is a guy who has like a pretty good recruiting pedigree. 59 recruit in his class, number one recruit out of the state of Indiana, so high in talent. He's someone who's going to give Endy's offensive line a real test. Bringing this review full circle, my, my final thought on Purdue, I just don't think they have the horses to hang with Notre Dame, especially at Notre Dame Stadium. Even though we've looked shaky in these first two games, there's just a talent gap here. We, we talked about this coming into the Toledo game, so feel free to discount this as you'd like. But Notre Dame ranks number 12th in the 247 talent composite, while Purdue is all the way down at number 46. As a reminder, the 247 composite looks at your recruiting ranking for the entire roster. It combines four years of recruiting, plus any fifth and sixth year seniors, and plus or minus anyone leaving for the draft or transfers in and out. Now, we mentioned Bell and Wright at wide receiver and Karloftis at defensive end. They've, they've certainly got some high-end talent that maybe Toledo didn't have. But in total, they have seven total top 300 recruits on their roster. 
By comparison, Notre Dame has 38 top 300 300 recruits on our roster. So Purdue, they've got a few playmakers. They can definitely, you know, try to keep up with Notre Dame in this game. But I just think ultimately the Boilermakers are going to run out of steam. See what I did there? Steam, Boilermakers. All right, I'm done. Bad jokes are over. You, you should just, yeah, you should just leave. Time, All right, I'll time sit to this next off. one out. <laughs> uh, so uh, the opening line is about seven points. Given Indy's recent performances and Purdue's tendency to keep games competitive, uh, I see why the spread's landing there. I do think we'll be able to put some points on their defense. Uh, circling back to our defense, the one big area of weakness in particular, as we've mentioned, has been big plays, which fortuitously is where the Purdue offense isn't quite as proficient. I think that'll be enough for an ND win. Uh, however, I don't think they're going to cover. My prediction is it's ND winning somewhere around 35-30. Where are you at, Brett? I've got this game at 31-17. I, I think ND covers this game comfortably. I think we bounce back. We talked a lot about the stats and things sort of regressing to the mean. That being said, I'm a glass-half-full kind of guy, and I would highly recommend Notre Dame fans stay away from betting on this game. We've got injuries piling up at linebacker at the offensive line that only further exacerbates some of our areas of weakness right now. And I just don't think we can really trust Notre Dame yet. So I'm feeling optimistic about this one. I think it's a bounce back game, but I'm not saying that with a lot of confidence. Yeah, we do have a full week of prep this week, so maybe that'll make some difference. Um, I think there's no excuse for Toledo, but that was a shortened week for us. Um, I don't know if that had some impact on the uh, lack of intensity that all the players and coaches were talking about. So, yeah, I, I'm i picking 35-30, but, Brett, I'm definitely hoping that your prediction is uh, the one that comes true here. We'll see. So far, we've been wrong two weeks in a row. It's it's bound to uh, – we're bound to get lucky once, right? All right, so with that, let's move on to in a segment I'm excited about. We're going to dive into the offensive line and Notre Dame's blocking schemes. What am I asking our captains to do? They are going to be that conduit, right? That's the voice, the voice for you. So lean on. And for 133 years, that's been the case here at Notre Dame. In our first few episodes, we talked about how the offensive line could really be the make or break for this season. And after the Florida State game, that's definitely been identified as an area of improvement. As as we talked about in earlier episodes, a lot of blue chip talent, four or five star recruits on this offensive line, but we're also breaking in four new starters. And early on, I think that youth, that inexperience is showing itself. You know, as we mentioned, Florida State game, pro football focus had the offensive line really graded out at mediocre to bad. They were 70 in pass blocking. That's, you know, grade of 70 is on the lower end of what pro football focus considers their starter level grade. And then in run blocking, we were a 59, which is a replaceable grade, which basically means you're as good as the bench player. So not a great start to the season. It's something we said might take time to gel. It's something uh, we're really looking at for improvement. And we all know as football fans, offensive line is just table stakes for a good college football team. A lot of pundits talk about how QB and wide receiver play is really that explosiveness you need to get to elite and to great for championship teams. But to be a consistent top 15, top 25 team, it really begins with the offensive line being able to control the line of scrimmage, control the run game. And and that's what brings that consistency that's really become such a hallmark of Notre Dame in, in these last several seasons. And so we wanted to dedicate time to really helping our listeners better understand uh, offensive line play, blocking schemes, the intricacies of that, and you know, things to watch for to really better understand what Notre Dame's doing in the trenches. And as a reminder for our listeners, under Jeff Quinn, Notre Dame's offensive line coach, we run our zone blocking scheme. And I think a surprise to a lot of our fans, this actually is a different scheme than what we ran with Harry Heastan, the former offensive line coach. In the first five years of Brian Kelly's tenure, he's now coaching the offensive line for the Chicago Bears in the NFL. The Bears still suck. And certainly this is a very, very different uh, scheme than maybe the power blocking football fundamentals that most fans are list, uh, used to, especially you know if you grew up with football in the 70s, 80s, 90s, re- really until the mid 90s. Um, that was the only blocking scheme out there. So in this segment, uh, Trinae is going to sit this one out. I've done a ton of research in the offseason on blocking schemes, help try to explain the X's and O's, and, and I'm going to walk you through three different blocking schemes, the, the power the zone blocking that I mentioned that we run today with Jeff Quinn, and then also the pin and pull scheme that was a trademark of Harry Heastan. Uh, we'll start with the offensive line and what they do, but I'll also want to come back 
and discuss how this impacts what running backs play and, and how they read these plays differently, these schemes differently, and, and how we've seen that come out in Kyron Williams and, and some of the other recent Notre Dame running backs. So starting with the power blocking scheme, this one's probably the most straightforward. The idea is that each lineman identifies a defender to engage one-on-one, and the goal is to move that defender backwards. In certain situations, you know, say if you're going up a really good defender in All-American, you may choose the double team, but by and large, power blocking scheme is fundamentally predicated on winning one-on-one matchups. And the, t- the technique's pretty simple. It's push the defender in the chest and try to move them backwards. Uh, that's really simplifying it. There's obviously a lot more to it than that. But this was essentially the football blocking scheme throughout really the history of football until the mid-1990s when the Denver Broncos and Mike Shanahan developed the principles of the zone blocking scheme. So quick recap on power blocking. One-on-one matchups push the defender in the chest. And as we talk about zone blocking schemes, so this is what Jeff Quinn now has implemented at Notre Dame. As I mentioned, this was developed by Mike Shanahan and the Denver Broncos in in the 1990s, won a Super Bowl with it. And it's really grown in popularity. Some version of this is now used across the NFL, um, multiple college football teams, really a lot of group of five and, and power five football is now implementing some version of this scheme. And it's what Notre Dame uses today. So the goal of a zone blocking scheme is predicated on a double team where really two offensive linemen are dedicated to a defensive lineman on the play side of the ball. So if you're running to the right, the left guard and center might double team the right tackle and the right guard and right tackle might double team the uh, right defensive end. And the left tackle ideally hopefully gets the left defensive tackle, maybe the left defensive end, maybe those other linemen on the opposite side of the play are actually left unblocked because they're sort of viewed as out of the play if they're on the left side and we're running to the right. And then the term zone uh, really comes from the fact that you have two linemen working together to block an area or a zone. And it's not necessarily a specific defender, but it's whatever defender is in that area where your two linemen are working together. And what's most critical about this concept is the way that the double team occurs. It's really critical here. So each of the two members of the double team working together have a specific role. There's two roles. There's one that's called the covered lineman, and the other is the leverage lineman. So what is the covered and what does the leverage mean? The covered lineman is assigned to pushing the defender squarely in the chest, similar to the power scheme. 1-1 mashup, chest to chest, try to push him backwards. The leverage lineman is designed to then come in at the defender from an angle. So rather than hitting the defender in the chest, this leverage lineman is coming in to hit the defender from the side. And now I want to walk through and picture that a little bit. So if you're standing front to front with your buddy and the two of you push against each other chest to chest, if you're of equal strength, you're probably not going to go anywhere. You're probably going to roughly push each other the same force and you're going to stand still. Now... Have your friends stand sideways, and you get to push them forward, and they have to push you from their side. If you're of equal strength, you're going to win that matchup every single time. And then let's go a step further, and I'll put that in a double team. Now imagine that you have another friend pushing your first friend in the chest, and you also get to push your friend from the side. The person who's getting double teamed is going to go flying. You're going to win that matchup every single time. That's the principal concept of the zone blocking scheme where you get one offensive lineman pushing a defender in the chest. The other is quickly engaging to knock that defender off their feet by pushing them in the side. Then comes step two. That covered lineman is entirely focused on winning that first matchup. But the leverage lineman, the lineman delivering the big blow from the side of the defender, is more focused on then immediately getting upfield. So a term I've heard a lot before is block and go, block and go. So you're going to blow up the defender from the side and you're immediately going to move up field to go find another defender. Hopefully a linebacker, maybe a safety, someone at the second level, four, five, six yards downfield. The beauty of this is that it doesn't really matter what formation the defense lines up in. Each pair of linemen is focused on an area. They're going to identify that first defender, try to blow them up together. The leverage lineman gets up field, reads and reacts to another area, and quickly responds on the fly to go find another defender, get upfield, and create running lanes. So I went through a lot there. I'm going to pause. 
I now realize we've completely demolished this one defender and we've got a big lineman barreling downfield to pave the way for the running back. Sounds great. Should work every time. But what about the rest of the defense? And doesn't this take a lot of time for these big offensive linemen to make two different blocks and get moving upfield? So on the first question of what about the rest of the defense, the zone blocking play is usually designed to try to get two or three double teams. Maybe it's a right tackle and a tight end, the right guard in the center, and the left guard and the left tackle. That would be three pairs working together to go find three double teams. So if you're running to the right, you might pick up three double teams and then hopefully get three of your linemen moving upfield. On the left side of that play, there will be a bunch of defenders that you just leave unblocked and you trust that they're so far away from where the running back is that they're effectively out of the play. The second question is, doesn't this take a lot of time? And the answer is yes. Yes, it does. And that's led to two very important results that we've seen in football. One, speed for offensive linemen is really important in this scheme. I I mentioned the 1990s Denver Broncos earlier. They were famous for having a really small offensive line compared to other NFL teams. As an example, their all-pro center, Tom Nalen, he only weighed 280 pounds, which was 20, 30 pounds lighter than most other NFL linemen at that time. So you'd get a relatively fast, but still big dude, to get truck into that second level and go find a linebacker safety. This also makes a very important difference for running backs in a zone scheme. It requires a lot of patience. You may see a double team work on that first blocker, try to run and hit that hole too soon, but you haven't let the play develop. That leverage lineman hasn't gotten upfield, and you've maybe missed the double team where that lineman did get to the second level, and now you're clogged in the middle. This is something Kyron Williams really struggled with early in his career. It's something he's developed a lot of patience for now. Um, the greatest example maybe of just a patient running back in his own run scheme is Le'Veon Bell at Michigan State and then earlier in his NFL career at the Pittsburgh Steelers. He'd string out plays and wait for one, two, three, four holes and then finally make a cut when he saw that leverage lineman get up to the second level and then he'd go and he'd hit that hole really hard but it might be, you know, literally one, two, three seconds later into the play. Juxtapose that to the power blocking scheme. Again, that's the one where a lineman's trying to win one-to-one matchups. The play is basically predetermined where the runner's going to go, and the runner's goal is to hit that hole as hard and as fast as possible and break through the line. One of the greatest of all times in recent memory to do that is Adrian Peterson. Ran behind a power blocking scheme with the Vikings, with the Oklahoma Sooners in college, And he was so great at just hitting that hole hard, fast, and getting four or five yards before the defense could blink. Had a ton of success doing it. Later in his career, he was traded to the Washington Redskins, who ran that Mike Shanahan zone blocking scheme, and Peterson struggled. He just didn't have the patience to really make that adjustment and really wait for those plays to develop. I give those examples of running backs and patience because I think a lot of times Notre Dame fans are critical of Kelly and short yardage plays for calling plays that seem like they take forever to develop. They seem like they're just not really smash mouth football on third and one. Um, you know, why can't we run a halfback dive? We got the best offensive line. Why can't we just power the ball? And it's really because by design on third and one, we're still stalling. We're still drawing out to see that first, second, third hole open up and let that play. Uh, the other thing I'd say is, you should be passing in short yardage situations depending what the defense gives you. So one of the things you hear Brian Kelly talk a lot about is counting the hats at the line of scrimmage. If the defense has too many hats in the box, or too many defenders stacked right at the line of scrimmage, there's simply too many defenders for those double team matchups to work. And that's when you need your quarterback to audible, trust your passing game, and and then have mismatches on the outside where there's fewer defenders on your receivers to get that balance to be successful both running and throwing the ball in short yardage situations. You know, one great example of that uh, was when we lost to Clemson in the Hurricane game in 2015. Notre Dame scored seven seconds. I think Tony Jones Jr. uh, scored a touchdown to, to get us within two points. And Notre Dame ran a QB draw for Deshaun Kaiser, and it got completely stuffed. If you go back and watch that play, Clemson had an absolute overload defense to where Kaiser was trying to run. There were just too many Clemson hats for those double teams to work to give Kaiser a running lane. Uh, there was just, you know, said differently, that leverage blocker had nowhere to go because the second defender was already there. In that scenario, Kaiser's right read was to audible pre-snap, 
check out of that run play and either run it to the other side of the field where there were fewer hats or audible do a pass play. We got the pre-snap wrong, game over, Irish lose. We were just set up in a bad position for the for the blocking scheme to work. Lastly, I wanted to touch on a third blocking scheme, the pin and pull. Uh, Notre Dame used this blocking scheme under Harry Heastand, as I mentioned, our former offensive line coach. The Bears still suck. And this scheme was there for the first five years of Brian Kelly. Uh, it's an offshoot of the zone blocking scheme. It keeps a lot of the same concepts, most importantly, that leverage blocker. In fact, it really tries to double down on the concept of a leverage blocker, and it removes the concept of the double team. So in a pin and pull, there's three or four linemen that will act as the pins, which really means they will try to pin down a defender by all crashing down from the side, similar to a leverage block. So imagine the center, right guard, and right tackle will all crash to the left, and each will try to hit three defensive linemen from that side. Now, there's no double team there, and each of these linemen are pinning down because they have leverage. It's all about trying to hit a defender from their side and win that matchup because you're getting to push your buddy from the side rather than chest to chest. At the same time, the linemen who are not pins will pull around. They'll swing and actually run behind the pins that are crashing down in the opposite direction. So in that example, when the center and the right guard and the right tackle are all crashing down left, the left guard and the left tackle will actually be swinging around behind them to the right. Now those are the lead blockers working upfield to go and find those defenders in the second level. The other example that I'd say to this is you can imagine all sorts of combinations when tight ends and receivers get involved, where you might have four pins and two or three polling or three pins and one polling or, you know, pins going in different directions. And it leads to a really complicated playbook. I think it's one of the reasons why you've seen younger offensive linemen really not be able to get on the field earlier in Kelly's tenure. Or if they did, they've often struggled because there's so many different combinations, so many different assignments gets complicated quickly. But when it works, say with the Martin brothers, you had some really great offensive lines in those years because the pin and pull is really effective where uh, without double teams, your linemen can get to a lot more defenders more quickly. And if done right, they're still getting that leverage that sets up the linemen to be successful in their blocking. Other caveats about pin and pull, similar to zone blocking scheme. You need linemen that can move quickly. They need to cover a lot of ground when they're the poles. Um, also similar to a zone blocking scheme, this is all cre- uh, predicated on leverage blocks. Here, the term is usually pin, not leverage. And then the last thing is similar to zone blocking scheme. It takes some time to develop. That takes time to get those linemen crashing down as pins, the pulling linemen coming around. A lot of patience out of your running backs, just like the zone blocking scheme. Um, I bring this up because you'll still see Notre Dame use this. It's one of our wrinkles. Jeff Quinn likes it in certain situations. We've definitely moved away from this as our uh, normal or typical blocking scheme, but it's still very much a part of the Notre Dame playbook. So overarching points that apply to both zone blocking and pin and pull schemes, as you see Notre Dame implement these in our offense, tight ends are really important. Um, especially in the zone blocking scheme. So if you've got great blocking tight ends to go along with your five offensive linemen, that now gives you a sixth blocker. That lets you create three double teams instead of two. So Tommy Tremble, Brock Wright on our 2020 campaign, they were huge in the running game. Nick Wisher in, uh, in 2018, another big blocking piece. They were really critical roles um, for even just some of the simple examples I gave to lead to more blocking combinations that Tommy Reese and Jeff Quinn have really used effectively in drawing up the running plays uh, within our offensive playbook. And lastly, these blocking schemes, they're not about brute strength. If you compare this to power blocking, it's taking the strongest player and go win one-on-one matchups. In zone blocking and pin and pull schemes, there's timing, there's coordination with your other linemen, There's a big consideration of if you're that leverage blocker, how long do you stay engaged on the first block before you move to the second level? How long do you take to make sure that first double team really worked before getting up field? And then when you get up field, 
you need to be really quick and decisive in making your next reaction of which defender to go attack at the second level. Quickly identify the defender you're going to go and block next. There's a lot of communication in that. There's a lot of experience and timing and reaction. And rarely are you blocking on your own. It's almost always coordinating with another teammate on the offensive line. So we talked a lot about gelling, the offensive line gelling in our first few episodes. And it takes time to get that gel to work. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about Ken Rocco Spindler and Carmody and Blake Fisher just show up and move someone on the other side of the ball. That they can. They're bigger. They're stronger. They're more physical. Like They are well set up to do that. But what they really need is time to develop that chemistry with their other linemen to use this blocking scheme to their advantage, to really uh, accelerate to the next level of blocking within the concepts of this offense. We mentioned in 2019, we got off to a slow start running the football. After replacing a lot of starters on the offensive line, it took four or five, six games before that really started to take off. Also helped Dexter Williams came back from a suspension. That time it took to gel, it was almost by design of these schemes. You know, it's, it's a huge flag again this year. Um, but Notre Dame fans should have comfort that Jeff Quinn's gone through this before. He's got a great track record of getting the offensive line group to play well down the stretch. And I think we should have comfort that once this does gel, once this scheme does set in for these new starters, there's no lack of talent or strength. This is a bunch of blue chip recruits. Uh, and once they get clicking together, they should be another strong uh, unit for Notre Dame. But there's real challenges in implementing this scheme. It's complicated, especially for players that haven't played together before or played in this system before. And so really, you know, our big question as we think about these Toledo and Purdue games is, is that enough time to gel? Will this line really start clicking before we get to Wisconsin in the teeth of our schedule? Maybe the biggest factor of whether or not this team gets to 10 or more wins is going to be how quickly this offensive line gels, how quickly you really start to see this run blocking, this zone blocking scheme open things up for Chris Tyree and Kyron Williams. You're not going to change Notre Dame. Notre Dame's going to change you. Wow, if our listeners could see Brett right now, he's some scary combination of John Madden, John Gruden, and Herm Edwards. Just a, the penultimate football guy. Uh, really interesting stuff there, Brett. I certainly learned a lot uh, preparing that segment together this week. Hopefully our, our listeners followed all that. A lot of good insights. But might take a couple of listens to get it all. Uh, but most importantly for our listeners, you should know that Brett, uh, full disclosure, weighs about 170 pounds soaking wet. So not exactly your prototypical Andy offensive line. Maybe we should have put him through some uh, some uh, nutrition routine to try to get him to bulk up uh, 100 pounds or so. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you definitely wouldn't want me going on the other end of a leverage block from Jared Patterson. But yeah. I really got into the offensive line last year. I think it completely changes the way you get to watch a game. So often our eyes are focused on the guy with the ball. But what really happens in a lot of these plays is that the offensive line dictates a lot of the other facets of the game. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mike. He's going to cover this week's Notre Dame obscurity. Take us home, Mike. To close out our episode this week, we'll be moving back to our recurring ND obscurity of the week segment. We'll generally be alternating between this and our Four Horsemen segment depending on what seems particularly relevant in a given week. This week's topic is the history and purpose of the shirt. While the shirt is well-known and certainly not an obscurity for the ND community, the same isn't as true for its history and for the purpose it serves for the ND student body. Real quick for our listeners who may not know what the shirt is, it's essentially the official game day t-shirt for a given season. Each year, the shirt is a different color with a different design, paying homage to ND's traditions. If you look into the crowd of an ND game, you'll see a large percentage of the people wearing it in addition to people wearing old versions of it. The design is unveiled every year in April during ND's Spring Student Union Board week-long festival, Antostal. This festival aligns with the Blue Gold game, and also, as many alums fondly recall, certainly I fondly recall it, Pigtostal. Ideally at a home game, critical mass of the crowd is wearing the shirt, creating impressive color coordination. Uh, that doesn't always work out. I will say we tend to have better luck with this in greenout games in years with a green version of the shirt. Um, moving into the history of this tradition, then senior and chairman of Antostal, uh, Hannah Brennan came up with the idea in spring 1990 to sell t-shirts to raise funds for the student activities associated with Antostal. The first shirt created for this fundraiser was also intended to unify the student body for the home matchup against Michigan a couple weeks into the 1990 season. It was an immediate hit. 
selling over 9K shirts with sales of over 17K. Uh, and after saying that stat, I realized they were selling these shirts very, very cheaply. Uh, yeah, not, not the $25 that they currently charge in the uh, bookstore. There's clearly been some inflation with uh, Notre Dame merchandise. Uh, but due to the success of the program, it continued the following year under Hannah's successor. Eventually, as its success and reach continued to grow, revenue exceeded the needs of the Student Union Board. The Shirt Project, as it's officially known, then became its own separate student organization and distributed its profits to other student organizations. It is now a major source of income to student clubs, organizations, and causes. Uh, Circling back to that first year the Shirt was launched, uh, a notable charitable component of the project began then, too, when a second, separate version of the shirt was created for the October Miami Hurricanes game. That shirt was launched to support a doctoral student who had been seriously injured after being hit by a car in October 1989. It was tagged T-shirt for the cause and started a tradition of the shirt using its proceeds to support students with extreme medical expenses. And this impact is meaningful. The shirt project estimates on average that half of its funds are allocated to the shirt charity fund which supports Notre Dame students who suffer from those extraordinary medical conditions that require payment beyond their means. Um, other notable uses of the, of the uh, project's profits are establishment and maintenance of memorial scholarships in the names of uh, Megan Beeler and Colleen Hip, two varsity swimmers who tragically died in a bus accident, as well as allocations to the Rector Fund. Uh, this Rector Fund is used um, to request funds for students who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford football tickets, textbooks, or fees for other activities. Very interesting summary, Mike. Clearly, the shirt's done a lot of good since its launch. The one thing I'd highlight about the shirt, Notre Dame has never won a national championship since we launched the shirt in 1990. Again, we're not a superstitious podcast, but we are a little stitious. So I think we got to win a title soon, so we're going to have a new golden age with the shirt tradition coming alongside the ride for a national championship. Otherwise, no title since its launch. And with that, we're going to wrap up our episode this week. Thanks for joining us, everyone, and Gyrish. Gyrish.